Babies are awesome. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but babies are awesome. They require a lot of attention. They pull out uh, the sinful tendencies of your hearts in ways that you have never seen before. They put you to the ultimate test, and yet they are awesome. A gift of God's grace that we would see these little lives shaped and formed before us. One of the things that as we see kids grow that causes trouble for parents is that when we see these little souls that the Lord has entrusted for a brief time to our care, running around in front of us, I've heard it described before that it's like seeing your heart ripped out of your chest and running around everywhere, climbing ladders, swinging from dangerous things, walking along ledges, jumping from furniture to furniture, seeing them fall down, get hurt, and watching them grow to take risks that they are completely unaware of. You see these little ones running around and your, your heart is really put to the test as you see uh, them grow up under your stewardship. Babies are awesome. Children are awesome. And yet, we see that there's things that we want to do for our children that we are incapable of giving them. And for instance, there's some families that under various circumstances outside of their control, are separated from their children. I know brothers and sisters in Christ and other nations around the world, in order to eat, a husband has to go and work overseas for almost all year, even years at a time, months at a time, not seeing the family, and has to only provide and care for the family from a distance. There's some cities and cultures and communities where unless the husband and wife are both outside of the home working, there's no hope that there would be provision of food. And so in many societies and cultures, the grandparents are often the ones that are raising the children. There are things that we want to provide for our children that sometimes under God's providence in this world, we are unable, unable to give them. And we want to nurture them and see them grow under protection and security. And yet sometimes that's beyond our reach, particularly seeing kids suffer, whether it's illness, whether it's death. I wonder if you faced that kind of thing before. It feels backwards. We know growing up in a fallen world that where death exists, that ultimately children are going to have to bury their parents. But it feels so backward when it's parents that have to bury their children. I wonder if you've experienced that, seen friends that have gone through that. It rips your heart out of your chest and it stamps it into the ground. It's a result of the fall. And it only makes our hearts hate sin more and more. But we see that when a parent is seeing a child go beyond their reach, go beyond their ability to be able to help them, that there's a separation, a distance between our power to help them when we want to be able to, we are limited in that regard. But one of the things that we see about the beauty of Jesus Christ this morning is that there is no distance that limits his ability to reach his people. There is no distance that exists between God and the children of man and that God has made image bearers. There's no distance that can somehow keep God from reaching out and being able to exercise his power to be able to save his children. And one of the things that we learned this morning in John chapter 4 
is that ultimately Christ is the only hope and there is no dis distance that can somehow limit Christ's power to save. If your Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54 is where we will be. Here's a little bit of context. Jesus has talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. He taught her about her spiritual thirst, that it's greater than her physical thirst. She leaves the, the watering bucket at the well and runs and tells people about Jesus. Right? Jesus loves her enough, we thought about, he loves her enough to expose her sin and confront her sin about, regarding her husband's and the current man that she's with. He loves her enough to tell her the kind of worship that God accepts, even though she's a Samaritan and they worship God really in accordance, uh, in antithetical to how God has revealed in his word. After all of this, then she left her water jar, told the people to come to see a man that told her everything that she did. Could this be the Christ? And then we see Jesus moving away from that place and coming into Galilee again, Cana in Galilee. Verse 46, John chapter 4. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So that's the first sign. There's seven in the Gospel of John. This is just the first one that we've observed so far. So here comes the second one here in our passage this morning. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you, and that's the second person plural, unless you all, y'all, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's about one o'clock, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, necessary, sufficient, good, and satisfying word. And I pray that the Lord would write its eternal truth upon each of our hearts. Here's the big idea of the text. If you're taking notes, you can put this down. I, I usually give kind of a, a big idea, main idea, and then I will give out the points and then we'll walk through. So number one, the big idea, no thing can separate believers from Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate Jesus in his working of his power to the effect of his people's lives. And I have three points. Number one, let desperation drive you to Christ. Let desperation drive you to Christ. Number two, Jesus' power isn't limited by distance. Jesus' power is not limited by distance. And then number three, believe in Jesus Christ for yourself. Believe in Jesus Christ for yourself. Number one, let desperation drive you to Christ. Sickness and death is the great equalizer of men. We tend to think that if we have enough money, or if we have the best medical insurance, that somehow we can find security for our health 
for ourselves, for our spouses, for our family. But friends, we can't. Much of modern medicine is a blessing from God, but doctors can only do so much. So often it seems that whether it's our own hopeful aspirations and desires, or the doctors themselves, or the culture itself, that so often overpromises what they can do and underdelivers. And when we come face to face with the cold clinical language of a scientific diagnosis that no title or amount of money can solve, our hearts drop. Shock, sorrow, depression, panic, despair, it all kicks in. I wonder if you've been there. If you haven't, you will be. And this is something that's hard for children to understand, but as a parent, when there's nothing that you can do for your kids, when they are sick to the point of death, you get desperate. I don't care about my title, my social status. I'm gonna try and get whatever I can to help my kids. That's the context of this passage. An official, look at the text there, an official in the English Standard Version, the King James has, nobleman is coming to Jesus to help his dying son. Some other translations have this as royal official. I think that's probably the best translation of it from the Greek. All of these are right, though. This is a man's office of an official, a nobleman, a royal official that's connected to a king in the language who has ownership over a kingdom. The ruler and kingdom that this man worked for and finds his employ in is likely Herod. He's under Herod, who would later kill John the Baptist, and then Herod that would then participate in the trial of Christ. This official worked for the unbelieving, tyrannical oppressor of the Jews, Rome. And for a number of reasons, this doesn't appear to be the same person in this text of the official as the Roman centurion in Matthew. You can ask me afterward about why not. Look at verses 46 to 47 again. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. We don't know this man's ethnicity, but we do know his vocation, and his vocation is linked with the Gentile overlords of the time in Rome. He's a man with resources. First, he's a royal official. Second, verse 51, it describes he has servants. Third, he has the means to make this 15-mile trip. It's a day's journey from Capernaum to Cana. Worldly titles, worldly power is unable to help us when we are most desperate. And you can see that even he would lay aside some of those things in order to personally go and find Jesus, who he has heard is able to work these signs and wonders. The power of men is nothing compared to the power of Jesus Christ. And even as we'll see here, he immediately at first has a misunderstanding of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ came to do. And yet he sees that there is a power in Jesus Christ that no human being, no physician, no royal official is able to provide for his beloved child. Now this nobleman, royal official is worthy friends of imitation here. He loves his son 
he could have sent a servant to go and find Jesus Christ and have Jesus come with the servant down to help them. But he owns the condition of his son to the point that he goes himself. This is not something that is worthy of delegation. This is not something as a parent that's worthy of abdication to somebody else. No. He doesn't use his title as a justification to abdicate his responsibility to his son. Whether or not he's a Gentile or a Jew, this man throws his title, as it were, in the trash to go to this sign-working preacher, Jesus Christ. This isn't a distant, detached father, but one who is willing to risk his reputation to associate with this rebel-rouser, as it were, Jesus Christ, in order to help his son. This person that comes from a backwoods people in a backwoods place like Nazareth. His son is at the point of death. Jesus, friends, is able to do the impossible. I don't know what it is about maybe your reputation that would keep you from coming to Christ. Are you embarrassed that your friends would know that you don't count worldly titles and earthly means to somehow cure our soul's diseases as sufficient for what we need in our life? What is it that would embarrass us and keep us from taking the responsibility to go to Jesus Christ for our own soul's healing, but also for the, the soul's healing of our friends and family, our children? Jesus Christ is our only hope in the reality that all earthly hope will ultimately run out. Matthew Henry, who's a faithful pastor, a Puritan pastor, writes on this. The greatest men, when they come to God, must become beggars. The greatest men, when they come to God, must become beggars. Are you a beggar? Or is your reputation so big that that would prevent you from coming to Christ for yourself or for others? I think that so often when we refuse to come to Jesus Christ and pray through him to God our Father for the salvation of those that we know and love in our lives or, or even the physical help of those that we know in our lives so often betrays the fact that we count our pursuit of earthly helps as of a higher importance and power than Jesus' power. Friends, have you come to see your weakness in the face of sickness and death? And as we see in this passage, Jesus isn't merely concerned with physical weakness and sickness, but ultimately spiritual weakness and sickness. In the same way that this world and the power of men comes up short to heal our physical diseases, so it comes up short to heal our spiritual sickness with all of its emotional and psychological effects in our lives. Friends, we are both physical and spiritual, body and soul. Doctors attend to the physical in a very limited way, as many of us have experienced in our lives. But friends, who will attend to our souls? Who is able to help us with the pains and the sorrows that we have experienced? Who can heal our depression and our sorrow? Who can heal the guilt that we carry for the wrong things that we have done in our lives? When the world fails us, and when we fail ourselves, who can heal us? The Apostle John lays before us here in this passage, Jesus is the only hope in the midst of physical or spiritual disease. 
The healing, friends, that we need is so much more than physical, though. And friends, don't wait for the hardships that we face in our lives, that we, if we haven't faced them, that we know we will face them. They will come. Let those things drive you to Christ. Don't wait for trials to drive you to Christ. Learn through this passage and this text, through this royal official, that despair, that the only source of solace and comfort in the midst of life's despairs is to put your ultimate trust, not in titles or doctors, but Jesus Christ. Let the official's despair over his son help us to consider how we should despair over our weakness and man's inability to help us in our deepest desperation, whether physical or spiritual. And friends, don't wait for trials in your life to go to Christ. Go to him now. So that when you face difficulty, when you face sorrow, when you face loss in this life, we immediately have Christ's power as a comfort. That his promises will give us a comfort and a rest for our souls in the midst of the miseries of this life. Number two, Jesus' power isn't limited to or by distance. We often talk about the power of presence. There's a lot of usefulness and really benefit from being physically present with others. There is a comfort that comes not merely from talking to somebody on the, cell, the telephone or merely writing a letter. We see this, and we've thought about this before, as the apostles wrote letters to the churches. The apostle John writes to the church, and he says, I don't want to write with you, but I want to make my joy complete by coming to you and seeing you face to face. There is a power in presence of being with somebody. Action in the form of presence is meaningful, and so often we discount that with our lives. We think that we have connectivity, and we aren't lonely. We're not isolated because we talk to people on Zoom, the telephone, through social media, or, or whatever it is. But friends, friends, as part of being embodied souls, we have bodies and souls. We are relational beings, and we need to be with each other physically in a creational sense. In being composed of a physical body and a rational soul, we associate so often power and the ability to help somebody in a physical way. So it's hard for us to think that somebody could actually help us in a physical way if they're not present with us to do some type of physical action. They can somehow impact us in a physical way. I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of people don't like it when other people, believers in particular, would say, I'll pray for you. First, many have wrong expectations about what prayer is and does. Second, many have said that they will pray for other people, but they don't. Third, too often professing believers use prayer as a way to sound loving and pious, while at the same time they would justify inaction in a physical sense. James addresses this powerfully in James chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, warm, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Friends, as embodied souls, we are limited by geography. We are limited physically. So we think that the only thing that can help us is something that is physically present with us. And friends, in an earthly sense, in a created sense, that's true. But friends, in Jesus Christ, we have something completely different. Where his physical presence 
isn't the thing that is required in order for him to enact his power. The official recognizes the need for physical help. Look at verse 47. He goes to Jesus, physically goes to Jesus, and he asks him to come down to Capernaum in verse 47, verses 48 through 50. So Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. The official said to him, sir, again, physically come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Jesus' first response we see here in this text in verse 47, look at it, it's rebuke. This is surprising to us in our culture because we often use sorrow and trials as a tool for empowerment and pride. Often our culture uses trials as a kind of wall to block out what we don't want to hear from other people, namely the ways that we would be tempted to, to sin as broken sinners who have been deeply affected in suffering in the midst of a fallen world. For sinners, illness, sorrow, suffering, and trials are often used as a type of in invincibility cloak. The world often uses the categories of sufferer, of victim, of oppressed for more than just compassion and sympathy, but as an immunity from correction and even a source of power to use over other people. We block counsel. We, we block out as, as if we were, our suffering made us invincible to correction. Phrases like this, you can't relate to what I'm going through because you haven't been through it. Or you don't have the right gender, subculture, ethnic background, academic, or other worldly qualification, so you don't have anything of value to say in my circumstances here as I'm suffering. Friends, Jesus doesn't play these types of games. He grieves with those who grieve, and as a high priest, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses and shows compassion. He is the perfect example of speaking the truth in love. Jesus knows that he isn't loving this official well if he fails to correct his wrong thinking and sin in the midst of his suffering. Friends, beware of the ways that we would use our suffering to block out any correction from Jesus Christ for the ways that we would be particularly tempted towards sin in the midst of our sorrows. In the official's desperation, he was merely seeking a physical solution to the problem. He heard about the mighty works of Jesus Christ and only sought him, it seems here in this text, as a physical healer for his son. But here's the rebuke. Jesus isn't merely a sign worker. He's not merely a miracle worker. He's not merely a physical healer. He is the Christ. He is the only son of the one true and living God. He is the Lord and ruler of all things. He is the author of life. He is the savior of the world. He is the word of God become flesh. He is the son of God who is God, and his power is not limited by physical time and space. And the trials and illnesses of death, even the death of our children, aren't as serious as the illnesses of our sins and the eternal death that threatens us in the coming final judgment of God. Jesus didn't come merely to alleviate temporal, physical suffering, but to alleviate eternal, physical, and spiritual suffering in hell. And Jesus doesn't lose track of that in the midst of this suffering man coming for help. 
Look at verse 48 again. So Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. The belief that Jesus is talking about here isn't trust in the fact that Jesus can physically heal somebody. No, the official and those present believe that Jesus could do that. That's why they're there. That's the whole point of making this one-day journey of 15 miles from Capernaum to Cana. Note, the belief that Jesus is talking about at the end of verse 48 is that he is God. As the Apostle John has been making clear from chapter 1 to chapter 4, he is God. He is the only way that sinners can be reconciled to God. And this links with everything that Jesus taught to Nicodemus, everything that he taught to John the Baptist's disciples, to the Samaritan woman at the well. Our only hope of salvation from God's wrath is that if we would be born again, somehow that we would have the Holy Spirit of God given to us to renew our hearts, to give us a new heart and transform our minds. And Jesus has claimed, this is a magnificent claim, that he is the only one who is able to give this Holy Spirit that is the sole qualification that anyone would be able to worship God acceptably or be accepted into the eternal kingdom of God. He's the only one that is able to give this spirit. Remember John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes, this is the type of belief that we see here, him rebuking for only looking for signs and wonders. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You can see that Jesus is being gracious and merciful to a suffering man coming to Jesus for help. That he would expose the way that he's believing for physical healing, but he isn't believing for the main healing that he and his own son need. Friends, Jesus came to heal us, not merely of physical illness and death, but of the illness of our sins and of the eternal death that we deserve for our sins in God's just judgment that wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. Hell is coming. And it's forever. The belief Jesus is talking about here is that he has the power to heal us and to forgive our sins. This is similar to Jesus' healing of the paralytic where he says this in Mark chapter 2. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The point of Jesus' power over the physical realm is to prove that he has the power to forgive sins. In response, the official asks a second time, come down, come physically come, come with me before my child dies. The official is still begging for the physical presence of Christ to come with him down that day's journey to Capernaum to heal his son. But Jesus' power over the physical realm and over the spiritual realm is not limited by distance. Praise God. Look at Jesus' response in verse 50. Go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Friends, if we have an understanding of who Jesus claims to be in its right spot in our hearts and minds and our understanding, it can enable us to go on our way in the midst of suffering and death. The official believed that Jesus' spoken words alone were able to do what he said, so he went on his way. 
Friends, what are the ways that Jesus' words would silence our despairing? So that we might go on our way as we make pilgrimage through this world. What are the promises of Jesus Christ that we read of in his word? That he will never leave nor forsake us. That he truly will surround us with believers in the context of local churches to help us guard one another as we walk through this fallen world to make it safely home. The promise that Jesus will come again. He will not abandon us. He will come again to take us to be with him forever. That he is a sure foundation for a hope to make it through God's final judgment. To escape hell through the blood of Jesus Christ. And to sup with the king of kings forever in the glorious kingdom of God. Do we believe in Jesus' word and then go on our way as we walk through this world? Physical distance is no hindrance to Christ's power. In this one interaction, Jesus shows us that he has power over illness. He has power over wrong ideas about his limitations. He has power over sin. He has power both over the present and the future. Christ rules over all things. There is nothing that is outside of Christ's power over all things. He has the ability to do anything that he wants anywhere and at any time. He is not restrained by physical distance. And he is gracious even to manifest his power over the physical realm so that those like us who are, are weak to understand what Jesus is able to do and what he came to do would believe that he has the power to forgive sins. He is kind. That even in the midst of our having to see signs and wonders in order to believe that he is the Messiah, that he condescends to go ahead and do those signs and wonders anyway, so that we would believe. And our expectation is not to continually always see signs and wonders in the exact same way that we see them here, but that as we read God's word and we see the signs and wonders that Jesus Christ accomplished in his word, that we would see those and that we would believe. Jesus' rebuke in this text comes to us as well. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Friends, Jesus doesn't use our sinful misunderstanding of who he is as a reason to withhold his mercy and grace. Can you see his patience in his interaction with this official? Can you see his kindness to meet him even in his unbelief of looking only for signs and wonders? No, Jesus is gracious. To give signs, works, wonders. First, in fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophecies said that he would do, that the Messiah would come, that he would work signs and wonders. But second, to meet our hard hearts that are so slow to believe that he is the King of Kings, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he has come to live the perfect life that none of us have lived, to die the death that we deserve, bearing God's wrath and our shame on the cross. Rising again from the grave so that we would have a hope of justification through Jesus Christ alone. Friends, don't limit your hopes and Christ's power to merely the physical realm. Let this passage lift our eyes up beyond the physical and look to our spiritual need. One day in the future, even after this healing of this official son takes place, both the official and his son will die. And at their death, they must give an account to God. This temporal, physical healing of the official son is only to point them to their need of a spiritual healing, of a forgiveness for their sins. 
that would well up to eternal life that Jesus has been teaching about in the last couple of chapters. Their only hope is that Jesus healed this boy from physical illness once here. But that leads to an eternal hope that Jesus is able to heal our souls through the giving of himself on the cross. Number three, believe in Jesus for yourself. Believe in Jesus for yourself. The royal official believed the word of Jesus. Look at verse 50. He believed him. He held off on begging Jesus to come with him again. He simply trusted what Jesus spoke to him. Jesus' words, friends, are trustworthy for the physical healing here, but then that belief gives belief gives way to another belief in verse 53. Look at verses 51 to 53. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So 1 p.m. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was to this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Three applications from this passage. First, believe Jesus' word. He is trustworthy. He is true. You can entrust your life to the words of Jesus Christ. And by that, I don't mean just the red letters in your Bible, but the words of Jesus Christ. We understand, even the apostles understood, that when they were writing those letters in the rest of the New Testament, that they were writing the commands of Christ. Jesus is the word of God become flesh, and in his interactions, we see his promises, but then we see his promises come to pass in equipping his apostles, carrying them along by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us his word. So believe in Jesus' word that he has delivered to us both in the gospel accounts, but also through his apostles. His words can heal our souls, our spiritual sickness, to bring us back to God through the final death, eternal death that we deserve for our sins by the power of his resurrection. And his promises are sure. You can bank your life on it, build your life on the promises of Christ. He is trustworthy. Number two, friends, don't wait until you're despairing and that you've tried every earthly solution before you come to Jesus Christ. Learn from this passage that Jesus isn't the last option in case everything else that we try fails, he's always the first option. Come to him first. Jesus is the first and only option if we would set our hope in his power and authority to save us from God's wrath, to forgive us of our sins and sorrows and trials, and in the midst of life's difficulties, the sickness of children, the death of loved ones, futility at work, in the midst of these things, our sorrows and trials lighten. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, For this light and momentary affliction, the trials and difficulties of this life, even persecution and suffering, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, give your life into understanding what this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison is. Eternal life, forgiveness for sins, entrance into God's kingdom in heaven. Beholding the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus proclaimed, I create all things new. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 4. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Jesus here is being approached to do something that is seen in order to mercifully teach us of what is unseen. Salvation through his death and resurrection, through the giving of his spirit, qualified for entrance in God's presence. Third, use your life to investigate the intricacies of God's merciful providence. Study his mercy and grace. Observe how it works in your life and in the lives of other people as well. Look for evidence in the natural realm to corroborate God's miraculous work. And if we do that, that doesn't mean that we discount or don't believe in Christ's word. So here we see in this passage, the royal official immediately, what does he do? He asks when the son was healed. When did this happen? He's investigating. Whoa, whoa. I believed what Jesus said, that he would heal my son, but when, what, he's asking his servants, when did that happen? He's investigating the intricacies of God's providential mercy and grace in this circumstance, that he might understand it. And it says there that it was at one o'clock in the afternoon, the very time that Jesus said that his son would be healed. Friends, sit in awe and wonder at the mystery of God's power in Christ as he wields his authoritative power to do this beautiful thing in the, in the physical realm. Investigate and look into the ways that God has worked in the past, in his providence, in your life, in the lives of others as well, how God has answered prayer. Keep a prayer journal. I've, I've heard from friends, I haven't done this well in the past, but if you keep a prayer journal and then you go back and you observe those things that you have been begging God in accordance with his word for, there are many things that the Lord does to answer the prayers of his people. One of the ways that he accomplishes his providence and his design for all things is to answer the prayers of his people. So what are the ways that God has answered prayer in the past? Have you observed any of those things, whether in the salvation of friends or family? Whether it's even, we see in James chapter 5, that the elders of a church pray and God healed even in answer to prayers at times? Have we seen God answer prayer? We know that God answers prayer, so we pray. And then we investigate, oh, well, wait a second, I prayed for that last month in accordance with God's word, and God was faithful to answer that over here. Praise God! You can see that even as he investigates the intricacies of God's providential mercy in regard to healing his son, he doesn't use that as a chalk up and just to not worship the Lord. No, he and his household believed. The official trusted Jesus' words to do this physical thing, and now he and his household are humbled that Jesus has done it, he's seen it come to pass in reality and time and space. His ability to forgive sin and reconcile sinners to God is equally able to see him working in the lives of sinners in this world as well. Lastly, this passage doesn't teach us that we can always expect physical healing in answer to our prayers if we come to Jesus Christ. Coming to Jesus Christ isn't some magical ticket that can help us to escape suffering, persecution, death, and physical illness in this life. No. 
But God's word does teach us that Jesus has power over both body and soul. He is trustworthy and true. We can entrust our life, both body and soul, to him. And we know that while we face illness and death, one day his promise to wipe away our tears and illness will come true. We may not see it here and now, but it's coming. It's coming for his people. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water, of the water of life, without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So even in the promise of being rid of our illnesses and tears, there is a warning. If we do not have Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we don't have hope. If we do not have Jesus as our mediator on the cross, dying in our place, we have no hope. And the power of Jesus Christ to die for sinners on the cross is not limited by time or space. 2,000 years ago, his death was. And yet, it's effectual to accomplish and apply salvation to you here this morning if you are recognizing and acknowledging your sin and seeing your need for the forgiveness of your sins. But friends, mourn not merely over the sorrow and suffering of the people that we love in our lives in this world, but mourn over the sickness of our sin. Mourn over the hell that we deserve for our sins. And let that drive you to the only place that we can find hope for both physical and spiritual healing in, healing in Jesus Christ. Though we may not see physical healing in this life, it's coming when he comes again to raise our bodies from the grave, to reunite our souls and bodies together, where he will give us a grand entrance into his eternal kingdom as he comes. Jesus' power is not limited by time or distance, and he proves that this promise is true, and that we can bank our lives upon it. Like the official in this household, believe in Christ's power for yourself. And rest in his promise that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I'll close by reading this from Romans chapter 8. What is the only consolation in life and death? What is the only comfort that we can have in the midst of suffering and sorrow? What is the comfort that we can have in light of our deserving of death and hell for our sins? the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. 
and the fact that he will bring us safely home. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Jesus is able to heal us of our sin, to bring us safely into God's kingdom. He alone is the only hope in the midst of misery and sorrow in this life. Let your desperation in the midst of your weaknesses drive you to Christ. Let your desperation in the midst of illness and death of your loved ones drive you to go to Christ for the sake of not only their physical salvation, but their spiritual salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, talk with me afterward. I'd love to talk with you about how you can have a hope of forgiveness for your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ to talk with somebody that you're sitting around or that you came with. He is our only hope, and distance is no hindrance both to Christ's power to save or keep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for Jesus Christ. We give you praise that though we are weak and we have no ability to secure our own security, that you are our sovereign protector. Father, we give you praise that you have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit through your word that we might be convicted of our sin and driven to Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to be humble, even in the midst of our sorrows, that we would not build a wall that would somehow try to keep out correction for sin and wrong thinking. Father, we pray that you would help us to see that Christ is the only hope in this life or the life to come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.